1: Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. I'm going to start today with a little story from the sordid past of one Yale University. In October 1965, Yale's Beinecke Rare Books Library acquired a supposedly original copy of a 15th century Vinland map. Just a few years earlier, in a major archaeological discovery, the first fully documented site of Norse Viking settlement on this continent was located at the northernmost point of Newfoundland. It dated to around 1000 CE, nearly half a millennium before Christopher Columbus. This was the era of Leif Erikson, of Viking exploration, and the Vinland sagas, Icelandic stories of Norse exploration in North America, that were handed down throughout the generations. These tales, these sagas were well-known, but here in 1965 in Yale's Beinecke Library was now a map claiming to document those lands. The veracity of this document was immediately called into question and it remains a source of controversy, but that didn't stop Yale students from making their own use of the newly acquired Vinland map just a year later. On Columbus Day 1966, Yale undergraduates grabbed up some white bedsheets from their dorm and inked on them in giant black letters, Ericsson C. Columbus No. Yes to our Norse origins, in essence, and no to Columbus, the more famous Italian discoverer. They hung this banner outside of their dorm windows on Chapel Street, a main drag in New Haven, just as the Columbus Day parade was winding by. Students would later claim that they meant simply to support the already challenged authenticity of Yale's newly acquired map, but to New Haven's large Italian-American community, the slight from these blue-blooded Yalies was entirely obvious. Annette Kolodny, my guest today, arrived in New Haven a few years after this incident and had a few of the offending students who are now seniors in one of her literature classes. She writes about it, whatever their conscious or unconscious motives, a nation self-consciously made up of the descendants of immigrants is necessarily always nervous about national origins. This nervousness, of course, is only compounded in a settler colonial nation built on native land, constructed through indigenous erasure and appropriation. Origin stories, whether about Columbus, Leif Erikson, or the multitude of indigenous creations and migrations, carry heavy historical baggage, especially in a contents of a counter. Thankfully, we have a masterful scholar to help us sort it all out. In search of first contact, the Vikings of Vinland, the peoples of the Donland, and the Anglo-American anxiety of discovery is the culmination of a career-long odyssey for Annette Kolodny a pioneering feminist scholar and former academic dean. Published last year by Duke University Press, the book is a monument of interdisciplinary thinking, accountable research, and profound insight. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Annette Kolodny, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I'm honored you could join me today. Um, We're discussing your new book, In Search of First Contact, The Vikings of Vinland, The Peoples of the Dawnland, and the Anglo-American Anxiety of Discovery. It's from Duke University Press. The very first line of this magistral work reads, This book has been a very long genesis. Uh, in retrospect, seems to have stretched across most of my adult life. That's your opening line of the book. and uh, Without asking you to recount your entire career, as fascinating as that would be, I mean, you've been a groundbreaking scholar, a theorist, a feminist, an academic dean, Um, I'm hoping by way of introduction, you can talk particularly about the genesis of this project and what led you to, to tackle this rather large question.
0: I was an undergraduate English major at Brooklyn College in Brooklyn, New York, and I won an Alumni Association scholarship from Brooklyn College to study abroad when I was in my junior year. Because I was an English major, everyone just anticipated I would take the scholarship to England, but I wanted an adventure, and I thought, well, why would I want to go to a country where I already know the literature and I already speak the language? So I wanted to go someplace about which I knew nothing, and I knew nothing about Norway. So on a whim, I decided to take the scholarship to the University of Oslo in Norway, and they accepted me in their literature program. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to work at the graduate level with some of the most famous saga scholars of that era. Don't forget, this is 1961. I was in love with the sagas. I love Norwegian literature in general, but I was particularly taken by the medieval sagas, which are the stories of real people and real events that took place in medieval Iceland Uh, from about 900 to about 1100 A.D. And I read the sagas, and among the sagas I discovered there were two that told of journeys far west across the ocean to a place called Vinland, which in 1961 everyone assumed was somewhere on the coast of North America, but nobody really knew where it was. The two sagas that tell of those journeys are the Greenlander Saga and Eric the Red Saga. And they both basically talk about Leif Erikson traveling from Greenland west across the ocean to this wondrous new land that he calls Vinland because of its profusion of wild grapevines. Well, I was just fascinated by them, but when I got back to the United States, there was nothing I could do with them. In other words, I didn't see how they fit into the English major that I was studying at Brooklyn College. So I sort of put away all the books, remembered them, but just put them away, packed them away, and didn't think about them for many years. Many, many years later, when I did my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, I did my dissertation on the literatures of the American frontiers. I completed my dissertation in 1969 and then went on to teach at Yale and subsequently at other institutions, and continued as a scholar of the literatures and cultures of the American frontiers. And as I worked in that area, I kept pushing the frontier back. Columbus wasn't the first frontier, I knew, but there had been contacts before. And of course, the earliest known contact was the contact of the North around the year 1000. So at that point, I unpacked all the dusty materials I had brought back from Norway. I read all the new scholarship that had taken place in the interim. I realized that shortly after I returned from Norway in 1961, the uh, famous Norwegian adventurer and explorer Helga Ingstad had discovered what is still the only authenticated Viking-era site in North America at the tip of Newfoundland, and he had identified that as Finland. So I started looking at the sagas again as American literature, and I started thinking about including them in our curriculum about the frontier. So that's how it all started, and it just
1: grew from there. And that was a a sort of controversial inclusion, or or not controversial, but people were surprised that you uh, included some of those literatures into your, for instance, teaching on early American literature,
0: right? Absolutely. There were a number of questions. One was, well, why would you want to teach the sagas in courses on American literature when they weren't written for an American audience, Mm -hmm. they weren't written in English, And most people didn't realize what an impact they had on American literature. But I decided to introduce them at both the graduate and the undergraduate level uh, in the 1990s. Mm. And when I started to introduce them in my courses on the frontier, my students, both my graduate students and my undergraduate students, were thrilled. I mean, they were really excited. Mm. So they asked several really important questions. The first thing they asked was, Where really was Vinland? Where did all of this take place? Where was the Vinland colony? Where did the Norse think that they were going to set up this permanent colony? That was an important question, and the answer really wasn't there yet. The second question they asked was, who were the native peoples in the sagas with whom the Norse had contact and attempted to develop a trading relationship? The sagas tell of groups of native peoples whom the Norse called Skralings and Skrillings in Norse probably means something like little people who screech. But I don't think it could mean little people in terms of stature because the Norse at that point were only about five foot five, mm. and the Algonquian peoples with whom they had contact were probably the same height or, or taller. So I think it, it meant lesser people who mm. screech. At any rate, my students wanted to know who those people were, but there was only one way to know that, where was Vinland, and then you could figure out who the natives were who were there. And then my students said, well, in the sagas, we have the story of that contact between native peoples and Europeans, the first contact we know of, but we only have it from the side of the Norse, those Greenlanders who originally were Norwegians who went from Norway to Iceland, Iceland uh, to Greenland, and then Greenland to Vinland. We only have their side of the story. What's the native side of the story? And I thought those were really important questions. So, in the summer of, I think it was 1990-something, 1993, 94, I started researching answers to all those questions, and I thought, at that early stage, that I was simply going to answer my students' questions. Yeah. I was going to try and find the best available scholarship to determine where the Vinland colony had been, who the Native peoples were, and what was the story from the point of view of the Native peoples. But as the project grew, it grew beyond that. And we can talk about that, but mm-hmm. if, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the adventure of working with the Native peoples.
1: Absolutely. You've actually anticipated um, one of okay? my next questions. Thanks. Please do, yeah. Um I'm actually I'm curious about your collaboration and, and if you can talk a bit about the communities that you worked with and um, how folks responded to your inquiry and, and how you went about that process.
0: The people with whom I worked the most were um, uh, elders and families in the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot nations in Maine. But I also interviewed and worked with extensively uh, folks who are Micmac, Abenaki, Western Abenaki, and Maliseet, And those groups are from uh, Canada as well as northern New England. Let me explain why I thought those were the groups I should work with. In the sagas, the Norse describe scraylings in skin boats. By that they meant canoes that were made uh, with uh, moose hide, or um, deer hide stretched over sapling frames. Well, the only peoples who used that kind of canoe around the year 1000 were eastern Algonquian-speaking peoples from about, oh, um, north of Boston. They weren't used south of Boston. They were used north of Boston, up through the Gaspé Peninsula in Canada and the gulfs of St. Lawrence. So that gave me a clue that the people with whom the Norse had contact were the ancestors of those folks, of, of, of those groups. Also, the uh, sagas described certain kinds of woods, uh, certain kinds of hardwoods that the Norse were interested in harvesting, and the grapes. Well, the places where those things come together, and also the sagas describe a kind of self-sown wheat probably a species of rye. All of those things come together, again, uh, south of the Gulf of St. Lawrence into New England. So those two clues together gave me some sense of who the Native peoples probably were. And so I started to interview folks to see if I could find any old stories. At first, please understand, I was an interloper in these communities. I had a number of personal friends uh, who were Mi'kmaq and they introduced me to other friends in both the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot Nations and very slowly folks began to trust that I was on a serious scholarly venture to uh, uncover a lost piece of history and people began to tell me stories. In fact, The uh, then chief of the Penobscot Nation, James Sapier, told me a story that had been passed down through the women's line and had been told by his mother about the Penobscot's first sighting of Europeans. And he allowed me to print that book, that story, in my book. So very slowly, people began to tell me stories. And as they worked with me, I began to understand what was going on in the sagas. And I'll give you just two examples. In the sagas, in one of the sagas, the North don't want to trade weapons. Uh, they think that the Indians may have um, uh, a dangerous intent. And so the the head of the colony, whose name is Thorfinn Karlsefni says that they will not trade metal goods or weapons uh, with the Indians, but they do want the beautiful pelts, the sables, and, and furs that the Indians are offering in trade. And so uh, he uh, he's, he's very suspicious that the Indians are are fingering and looking at these metal uh, objects, some of which are weapons. What Carl Stephanie did not understand was Among these Eastern Algonquian-speaking peoples, the exchange of weapons, either real weapons or symbolic weapons, carved in stone, represents a gesture of peace and goodwill. If someone refuses to trade weapons, that's a sign of possible enmity, and it raises all sorts of suspicions. So at some point, some awful point in the trading, A native person was in fact examining a weapon and a Norseman killed him thinking he was trying to steal it, not realizing that the scrailing, as they call them, or the native person, was examining what was for him a potential trade item. And so these hostilities erupted because of the cultural miscommunications. I'll give you just one other example. Um, one of the things that attracted the Indians was red cloth. The Norse had a certain kind of dye that made for a very bright red cloth, and the Indians were eager to trade for red cloth. Well, as the trading went on, the red cloth began to run out, and so Carl Stephanie, uh tells people, well, why don't we cut the cloth in smaller and smaller pieces And even though they were trading smaller and smaller pieces of the cloth, the Indians were still willing to trade what for the Norse were these valuable pelts. The Norse thought they were cheating the Indians. They thought they were getting something over on them. What they didn't understand was, and Wayne Newell of the Passamaquoddy nation explained this to me, for those people, for his ancestors, red was a sacred color. So for them, it wasn't the quantity of the cloth. It was the quality of the red dye. That's what they were after. So the interactions between the Norse and the native peoples were a series of miscommunications, misunderstandings, and really dreadful, dreadful mistakes that brought to hostilities what could have been an amicable trading relationship.
1: I want to step back and ask you about uh, the third Sort of proposition of the subtitle of the book because I think um, we've started to get at a bit uh, the the issue of the sagas and native stories. Um, but I'm curious about what you term the Anglo American anxiety of discovery. Um, later, you call you talk about an ongoing anxiety of legitimacy that's bound up uh, with this question of discovery, uh, a question of what you say who really belongs here. Um, exactly. Yeah. Broadly, what do you mean by that? I'm hoping you can sort of broadly lay out what you mean by the Anglo-American anxiety of discovery.
0: What I said a couple of minutes ago about how this project started out in one way and then grew in many other directions, as I pursued this, I discovered several things. First of all, while my husband and I were doing research in Maine on several occasions, we met people who were actually forging Viking artifacts, they were so committed to the idea that the true discoverers of America were the Vikings, that they were forging artifacts because they couldn't find the real ones in order to prove that the Vikings had been in Maine, that the Norse were really America's original ancestors. And that got me started thinking, why does it matter to people who discovered America first? Why does it matter whether it was Leif Erickson around the year 1000 or whether it was Christopher Columbus in 1492 or whether, now we know, it was the Bosque who were fishing off the banks of Newfoundland in the 1450s? What does it matter? And so that's when I started thinking that this project had parameters that I had not originally anticipated when I began it. And... As I talked to more and more people, I realized, I came to realize that, for many Americans, the stories that we tell about first contact and discovery are really stories that help us shape who we think we are as Americans today. And so when the sagas were translated into English in 1837, and became widely available and enormously popular in the United States, there came to be a kind of, oh, competition between Leif Erikson and Christopher Columbus for which one should be named as the true original discoverer. Mm. Well, you might say, well, why would that matter? Well, it mattered because the United States was beginning to go through a period of change changing patterns of immigration. Before the 1840s, the major immigration had been from quote-unquote Anglo-Saxon countries, uh, England for the most part, and Germany to some extent. But after the Irish um, potato famine and the influx of Irish, who were of course Catholic, and The influx of folks from other parts of Europe, uh, Italy, Spain, uh, people who had never immigrated here before, Anglo Americans got very nervous that the nature of the nation would change because of changing patterns of immigration. The Protestant camp lines up behind uh, Leif Erickson and the North, and the Catholic camp lines up behind discovery of America is made by a Catholic from Italy. So the, for those people who are coming in from different countries, their sense of legitimacy as Americans is based at least in thought on who they can point to as their ancestors.
1: So I wanted to, to get into what you call uh, the politics of prehistory, in this chapter, you start with a really wonderful quote by Vine Deloria Jr., who, uh, whom you knew personally, I think. You yeah. mentioned this in the book. Um, he was addressing a conference of archaeologists in 1992, obviously an important year around the memory of discovery and Christopher Columbus. And Deloria addressed the archaeologists by saying, unless and until Indian people are in some way connected with world history as early peoples, we will never be accorded full humanity. We cannot be primitive peoples who were suddenly discovered half a millennium ago. What is Deloria getting out here, and how do you define uh, prehistory? What are the stakes involved in coming up with a definition? Why is this a political question, I guess, is what what I'm uh, ultimately asking.
0: Well, uh, who who was my former colleague here at the University of Arizona, was raising three critical questions when he posed that um, challenge to the assembled archaeologists in 1992. In 1992, the term prehistory basically referred to the point at which the so called New World, North America, got into the written documents and the mindset of Europe. In other words, the point at which there's documentary evidence of European knowledge of and contact with the so called New World. But if you think about the political implications of that terminology, it suggests that this part of the globe, that is North and South and Central America, didn't exist before the Europeans found it. In other words, it had no presence before it entered the texts and literature of the Europeans. So on the one hand, you're questioning the whole notion of a prehistory. Because, of course, there is a rich history of migrations to the Americas long before the Europeans ever got here. So, that was one part of the challenge he was posing. Let me give you the second part of the challenge he was posing. He was suggesting that just as the rest of the world has had multiple migrations and interactions with one another across the continents, so too the peoples of the Americas have in the focus of multiple migrations and that there must have been contacts across the continents with people from faraway places. In other words, he's saying don't assume that we have always been here totally isolated from the rest of the world and that we did not have either contacts from the rest of the world or that we ourselves did not go out beyond our own continent and discover other places around the world. In other words, he's questioning the notion both of isolation and of lack of contact. And the third crucial thing that he was questioning and challenging is the notion that these peoples, by virtue of being isolated from the rest of the world, were somehow, quote-unquote, primitive. That is, peoples of a lower and less advanced level of civilization. So it was a really charged, three-pronged challenge that Vine Deloria was posing for the archaeologists.
1: Was it uh, well-received by the archaeologists, do you think? It
0: was controversial, Mm. and it was controversial not only in the archaeological community, it was also controversial in the Native American community. Mm. Uh, Let me uh, just elaborate on that for a moment. Within the Native American community... Many, many different groups, many different nations have very different stories about their own origins. There are some groups uh, whose origin stories have them um, coming from this continent, coming up through the world beneath to the world above. Uh, others have stories where they have always been here, uh, that this is the place uh... from which they generated others have stories of migrations of coming from different places and sometimes coming from many different places so it isn't uh, a set theory among uh... native peoples as to what their own origins are different groups have very different origin stories and what Vine Deloria was trying to say was Let's look at the evidence for all of these different kinds of origin stories. They probably have real historical truths within them. However, taking that position also meant that he was opening up the possibility for people to say, well, the only reason the native peoples had achieved any level of civilization was because of outside contact. In other words, many Native groups wanted to uh, say that whatever um, level of civilization they had developed, they had done it on their own, that it hadn't been because Europeans or any other group had come and brought them some higher civilization. So his position was a very controversial one. But it did. I do want to say it did spark a lot of discussion, and it sparked a lot of new scholarship Mm. and... um, it really opened the doors to new ways of thinking about studying migrations.
1: Absolutely. And now, as far as I know, and I'm not an archaeologist, there there is overwhelming archaeological evidence of incredibly expansive trade routes within the Americas, for instance. I mean, you Absolutely. you'll have... Uh, items that are from the southeast uh, in the northwest, um, you know, in pre-contact or uh, pre-European settlement time. So at the very least, I think it's uncontroversial now that there were massive internal networks of trade and communication in the Americas.
0: And in addition to that, we now are beginning to develop and discover archaeological evidence that there were early migrations to the Americas, both across the Pacific and across the Atlantic, hmm. that the Bering Strait land bridge was not the only route of access, and that there may have been um, groups of migrants coming uh, into the Americas from uh, Asia, Africa, and Europe.
1: Incredible. Incredible. It's an exciting time to be, uh, to be looking at this.
0: Absolutely. Uh,
1: but stepping back a bit to early America, going back a few hundred years, I wanted to, to briefly ask you about this politics of prehistory um, what were the sort of predominating myths that early Americans, even before the revolution, so, you know, colonial settlers had about uh, the prehistory of the United States? What, what were popular in, let's say, uh, 1740s New England uh, when uh, people are theorized on the origin of the continent?
0: There were theories about groups called that we now call the mound builder cultures. When the first Europeans began exploring, they discovered large mounds uh, in western New York State, uh, in the Mississippi Valley, in the Ohio Valley. Now, these were mounds, earthen mounds, that were probably ceremonial centers. Some of them were burial mounds. Some of them were mounds for platforms uh, around which ceremonies took place. The belief among most Europeans was that Native Americans did not have access to any kind of metal, and therefore they could not have built these mounds on, them, on their own, that these mounds must represent some early civil, uh, superior civilization, possibly European, uh, that came here before the Indians. In fact, there were theories that the Americas had first been settled by, quote-unquote, superior races from Europe, and that the Indians were the latecomers, the the hordes of barbarians from Asia, is how they were characterized, who came and destroyed those original uh, supposedly white European settlers and destroyed their prior superior civilization. Those are the explanations for the mound builder cultures. We now know, of course, that the mound builder cultures of North America are related to uh, many of the cultures of Central and South America, that they are offshoots of those cultures, that these were enormously sophisticated and advanced civilizations that had large ceremonial centers and large trade centers. And they were part of that trade network that crossed the, both the continents uh, that you were talking about earlier.
1: And these, these myths about um, the origins of the mound building cultures being uh, from European or something else, they, they did real damage uh, in this early period. I mean, you, you actually write that um, this proved lethal to Native peoples uh, to have uh, this version of American prehistory predominate.
0: Oh, Absolutely. What were the implications it, of it? Well, if you could uh if you could persuade yourself and other Americans that this continent had really been first um discovered and settled by Europeans and that they had been destroyed by, quote unquote, barbaric Indians, then that becomes a justification for what the Europeans settlers are now doing, which is extirpating, annihilating the Indians. It becomes a kind of balance of justice in a strange way. In other words, instead of saying that uh, the newcomers from Europe in the 18th and 19th century who are taking over Indian lands are destroying an indigenous people, what they can justify their actions with is the story that, no, we're just taking over taking back what we ourselves originally had, because this continent was first peopled by superior peoples, and the Indians destroyed them, and we're just taking it back. So that was one justification for Indian removal. Mm. On the other hand, some people said, no, there may have been some relationship between these superior cultures and the Indians. And in that case, That would suggest that the Indians are capable of higher civilization, in which case what we want to do is, quote-unquote, civilize them, take them off their reservations, take them out of their tribal communities, and turn them into white men because we can make them truly civilized. Either way, the Indians lost out.
1: So... In this early period, were people, uh, were, were white settlers, Euro Americans in the, in the colonial period and even early American period, uh, widely aware of the possibility of, uh, Vikings, uh, Norwegian people, uh, having visited, uh, North America before Columbus? And, and furthermore, was Columbus a figure, uh, of importance to, um, people in the 18th or, or 19th century?
0: What was interesting to me as I did this research was to find out how early American readers had access to information about the Norse having discovered America long before Columbus. In fact, I found a letter written in 1773 by Benjamin Franklin in which he writes to the Boston minister Samuel Mather and says he has long, Benjamin Franklin says, I have long known that the Nordic peoples were here long before Columbus and he uh, writes that in a letter later to a a friend of his in France. Um, Stories, uh, materials from uh, Denmark and Norway were being translated uh, in Europe, and then they made their way uh, to the United States as early as the 1780s. So there was information, there was knowledge of the Norse discovery prior to um, the Columbian discovery. Columbus, though, only emerges as an interesting or or known or notable figure uh, during the Revolutionary War period. He's really not mentioned during the colonial period. He's of no consequence. But at the point at which uh, the American partisans decide to um, rebel against England, and this takes me back to what I was saying before, they're looking for another origin story. So they're looking for an origin story that bypasses England. So instead of being um, uh, uh, beholden to the English for uh, origin- English and the French for originally settling uh, the Americas, they say, "Aha, uh-huh, we were discovered by Columbus." And so Columbus emerges uh, during the period of the Revolutionary War as a figure that Americans look to for their new origin story. And there was a period of time when it was even suggested that the new nation should be called Columbia, mm. and that was put forward as a suggestion until they settled on the United States.
1: But never Vinlandia was uh, was never considered.
0: <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. Euro, when Euro-Americans got here, they were determined to take over the lands, the homelands, the mm. riches, the resources that the Indians had been enjoying for millennia. Mm. Now, mm. this was This is definitely going to become an offshoot of Europe.
1: Mm. So even if, you know, Columbus starts being reappropriated or reclaimed by um, the new Americans in the Revolutionary War, but that doesn't necessarily enshrine his status, at least in relative to the Vikings or the Norse. You write instead of this 19th century romance, uh, particularly between certain literary figures and the so-called Viking heritage of North America, what, what was this romance all about? Who were its proponents?
0: In a, well, let me go back to 1837. In 1837, uh, a Danish philologist named Carl Christian Raufen published a book called *Antiquitates Americane, that is, the Antiquities of America. In that book, he published in English a uh, translation of the sagas, of the two Vinland sagas, and translations of other medieval documents from Iceland that referred to voyages to Vinland and to the New World. And what made that book so significant was that he was sure he could identify where Vinland was. And he identified it with places, specific geographical places in Rhode Island and particularly Massachusetts. So all of a sudden, in 1837, Americans... Now have a whole new origin story it was it, it wasn't the case that Americans didn't know that Leif Erickson uh, hadn't uh, uh, discovered America first, but the question was where had he been now Raffin comes along in eighteen thirty seven and says